I'm Gerhard, and you're listening to ShipIt.show, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and eBPF. A few weeks ago, Jared was talking to Liz about the power of eBPF on the changelog. Today, we have the pleasure of both Liz Rice, Chief Open Source Officer at Isovalent, and Thomas Graf, CTO and co-founder at Isovalent, the creators of Cilium. Around 2014, Facebook achieved a 10x performance improvement by replacing their traditional load balancers with eBPF. In 2017, every single packet that went to Facebook was processed by eBPF. Nowadays, every Android phone is using it. Truth be told, if it's network-related and it matters, eBPF is most likely part of it. Big thanks to our partners Fastly and Fly. This MP3 is served with minimal latency from the Fastly Edge location, which is closest to you. Our app and database run on fly.io because it keeps things simple. Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by Sentry and their upcoming developer experience conference called DEX. Sort the madness. Deploying new code can be a lot like making a really great sandwich, taking a bite, and having all the contents fall out. It's exciting, it's chaotic, and it's maddening. If you know the feeling, then DEX by Sentry might just be for you. This is a free conference by developers for developers. We will sort through the madness and look for ways to improve workflow productivity. Join Sentry for this event in San Francisco or virtually on September 28th and discover new ways to make your life a little easier. Save your seat now for this event at bit.ly slash DEX2022. Again, bit.ly slash dex2022. This link is in the show notes. We are going to ship in three, two, one. Liz, welcome back to ShipIt. Hi, thanks for having me again. <laughs> Second time, Thomas, first time, welcome to ShipIt. Thanks a lot for having me as well. It's great to be here. We briefly spoke at KubeCon EU 2022, the one that just happened. Uh, thank you, Thomas, for taking your time, for sharing your eBPF excitement with me. I could feel it, but not just coming from you. 20 to 25 people various people that I spoke with, that's like half the conversations that I had at KubeCon, everyone keeps getting on about eBPF. This thing is so cool. Like it does like, it's like people just love it. And I'm wondering, is it Liz? Is Liz an amazing chief open source officer? And she talks to everybody. Is that what's happening here? What do you think, Liz or Thomas? I, I think, I mean, it's really the technology and... I mean, I got very excited about eBPF over the last few years. I mean, Thomas has been involved in it since, the, you know, day one. But for me, when I first came across it, I, you know, could really, it was an eye opener about what this could do and how this could change. Mm. You know, we can change the behavior of the kernel. That's pretty cool. And, um, you know, I remember seeing Thomas presenting at, I think it was that DockerCon that I've got the poster of behind me on the wall as we record. Um showing Cilium and, you know, I remember thinking, this eBPF thing, I'm going to keep an eye on that. And I've certainly, you know, over the past few years got more and more excited about it. And now, you know, it's pretty much 100% of my 
my focus is on Cilium and eBPF and, and, you know, the amazing things that eBPF enables. And if my excitement is, you know... Contagious. Yeah, exactly. If, if that's coming across to other people, then, um, you know, well, it's genuine. You know, I I'm, I'm genuinely think it's a game changer and I wouldn't be working in it if I didn't think it was so exciting. I think it is. It is very much so. Uh, the people make a huge difference. And if it started with Thomas... Because I think that's what I've heard here. Thomas was there, was there since day one. When was day one, Thomas? Because, by the way, the poster on Liz's wall is DockerCon 2017. I'm sure day one was long before that. So can you tell us a bit more about that, Thomas? Yeah, absolutely. Um, day one, when it was called eBPF, is around 2014. Very close to when the first Kubernetes commit happened as well. Mm -hmm. The origins of eBPF itself are a little bit older. So I think, but 2014 is when the integration of eBPF, it was not called eBPF back then, but integration of the idea into the Linux kernel, that was 2014. And back then it was Linux kernel, low level only. The discussion was around among kernel developers, um, not the eBPF with this broad ecosystem that we talk about today. But so it's been quite a, a number of years and it's been very exciting to watch the excitement levels go up and up, starting out like initially by kernel, kernel engineers only and the hyperscalers out there like Facebook and Google with, with their own kernel teams and, and what they build and then Facebook coming out and saying, hey, here we've replaced our entire load balancer and we saw a 10x improvement, like the light bulbs started going up, right? Um, hmm. And now what we have now is like an entire cloud native ecosystem getting excited about it. That's, it's very, very wild. It was a fantastic little um, fact that uh, Daniel Borkman presented. I, I can't remember which talk it was, but since I think it was 2017 or maybe 2018, one of those two, quite a few years, mm. every single packet that goes to Facebook, I guess now Meta, goes through XDP, which is part of eBPF. It's kind of eBPF's sort of network packet handling hook and you know i think that's astonishing every single packet of the i don't know how many countless billions that go to facebook for the last four years processed by ebpf it's pretty cool wow now that sounds amazing like if, when the big players are using it successfully for so long you know there's something there i mean kubernetes started a bit like that even though it was very different when it began and now like the almost like the whole world is using it i think or at least has has heard of it and the majority considers it table stakes i think it reached peak maturity and i think ebpf definitely crossed the chasm definitely from what i'm seeing so 80 is in the making a bit longer than that mm -hmm. yeah I, I would even say the majority of us are actually using ebpf every day we just don't know for example if you have an android phone in your pocket right the little statistic that shows how much traffic each of your apps is consuming or producing that's done by ebpf like nobody knows i get that that's why it was it was used as this lower level magical technology for such a long time what we're now seeing is this getting exposed to more and more the the industry and the public itself which is super exciting but i think actually from a as Liz is saying, like eBPF has been used for for years and years and years now in many in many use cases that we rely on every every day. Mm. I think the real changing point has been for the cloud native community, at least, is that everybody is now running kernels in production that are new enough that they have a pretty significant amount of eBPF capabilities built in. So, if you want to run eBPF based tooling 
you needed a certain level of kernel support and pretty much everyone has that now in their production deployments. And I think that's why we've seen this uptick in interest and excitement and just adoption really from you know people who are using not just Cilium but also you know the um, observability tools like uh, Pixie or Parker or um, you know there's a, a dozens of tools that uh, that people are now able to use and you know they're seeing great gains in performance they're seeing how effective eBPF is at you know giving you visibility giving you high performance it's it's a revolution it is five years later Thomas right this is a reference to a talk that you gave where if you want to feature in a kernel, you can ask for it and five years later, boom, you have it. <laughs> okay. So is it five years later now that people have been asking for this and it's everywhere in every single kernel? I think that's what's happening here. That was your eBPF day talk, which was really, really good. Now, I only watched the first two minutes. So can you tell me the rest? How does it continue? <laughs> yeah. So I think the, the question number one, I always hear is like, why is eBPF so exciting? Like, why is there excitement around eBPF? Like, what is the use case that eBPF solves so much better? And the answer really is it's so many because it's, it's more of a paradigm shift. And the best comparison is kind of what JavaScript enabled when it was made part of the web browser. And it, it, it changed how we use web browsers. So instead of just being able to display HTML back then, mm -hmm. all of a sudden it was an application platform and you could have application teams develop apps in the browser, within the browser. And it has, has enabled numerous, countless use cases. It would be very hard to say what is, what is the specific use case that JavaScript is really good at because it's this new programmable model that enabled an entire new ecosystem. And eBPF is exactly the same for the kernel. So we can now write applications for the kernel and solve a wide variety of use cases. And I think what we see in the EBPF, EBPF landscape is exactly this, from performance troubleshooting to lots of security networking, secure uh, runtime um, networking itself, now service mesh, like incredibly wide. Like it's, there's not this single one use case where EBPF is really good, which creates the excitement. It's this new way of doing development, which means all of a sudden, Almost everybody can write an eBPF application instead of becoming a kernel developer. And that's been very exciting for me personal because I've been a kernel developer for a very long time early on in my career. I was at Red Hat for 10 years running kernel teams. And this was a massive struggle like this age for this, this time from doing a kernel change to getting that change, that feature into the hand of users. eBPF has solved that exactly in the same way as JavaScript has solved this as well. Somebody writing a JavaScript application does not need to change browser code, right? Which was required 20 years ago when a new HTML feature came in, for example. Yeah. So you mentioned Red Hat, 10 years kernels. In my mind, if there's anyone really serious about kernels, it's going to be Red Hat. With their enterprise distributions, with their like, you know, like super hardened systems. So security-wise, eBPF makes sense. Why does it make sense security-wise? why like the big companies are adopting it and they're like yep this is this is good this like will not compromise our systems or the context or like the, the boundaries around it are safe are proven we're okay why is that there's two aspects here right one is ebpf as a technology to build really really good security tooling and typically you can build really good security tooling if you have 
the most amount of control and visibility. So being able to see everything is great and then being able to control as much as possible is great, right? And DBPF is exactly this. It can see everything from the lowest levels, like a driver level, really close to the hardware, all the way into observing and tracing applications themselves, the function calls they make, and everything in the middle. That's incredibly powerful and unlocks security tooling. At the same time, any security tool and any tool that's used for uh, security purposes obviously has to be secure by itself and the foundation it is built on top of. So there's a lot of emphasizes on the security model of eBPF itself because what eBPF enables is not completely new. Uh, if you have been using a Linux kernel, in particular earlier on, you may be familiar with the concept of a Linux kernel module, which allows to load additional kernel code. And it was invented for drivers. So if you have, let's say, bought a new laptop, you needed a new driver for your graphic card and you would load that kernel module. And kernel modules are completely insecure. If they crash, if they have insecure code in them, um, they would bring down the entire kernel. And they've also traditionally been used to essentially uh, as, a, as a way of invading the kernel as well to load malicious code. EPPF has built and includes a lot of additional safety while enabling that same programmability. So there is a verification component that ensures that uh, only safe and secure code can be run. eBPF itself is bound to capabilities, so you need the specific BPF capability to even load eBPF code itself. And then it even goes as far as to uh, implement things or concepts such as constant blinding to make it harder to abuse the code loading aspect as well. So now we're talking as kind of a next generation code signing. So making sure that the kernel will only execute an eBPF program if the signature of it still matches the one that was generated when the program was written and so on. And there's eBPF being used to instrument, to observe what eBPF programs are being loaded. eBPF can be used to restrict what programs you can run and so on. So I think there's both the aspect of this really powerful capability, what you can do with eBPF, and then eBPF also really focuses on being a secure runtime, which is obviously used and required if like, companies like Facebook and Google use this at massive scale for everything that they do in their own infrastructure layers. Yeah, I would say when people first sort of get the idea of eBPF, one of their first questions is, wait a minute, this is all powerful. Is it safe? And you know, the, the verifier that, that Thomas has been talking about is a huge part of making sure that it is. But also users need to treat it with the same respect that they treat root privileges. You know, it, it is all powerful and, you know, so is root. And that's why we are very careful about who we allow to have root access to a machine. The same should be true for eBPF tooling as well you know you need to be running <laughs> don't download an ebpf program from the internet if you don't know where it came from you know the same way that you wouldn't download any other code from the internet or you shouldn't just download any other code from the internet and run it without uh, you know knowing what it is and things like the the signing will really help to give people confidence about that i think this is an incredibly important point i think it was Alexei Starovoitov, the other co-maintainer of eBPF working at Facebook, who said at one of the eBPF summits that you should treat eBPF programs as if you would write kernel code and merge that into the kernel and then ship it to millions of users. 
And if that is the assumption, if you essentially, yeah, this is now part of the kernel and you would do the same sort of vetting of the code that goes in, then eBPF is massively more secure than actually writing that kernel code because it does run in a sandbox environment. It goes through the verifier, which is actually why some of the hyperscalers use eBPF to, for example, solve zero-day exploits because they can, they can literally not reboot all the machines that are affected quickly enough. It takes them weeks to actually reboot a machine with a kernel fix. So they're using eBPF as a way to address zero days in the kernel and treat it as a better, more secure way of writing kernel code. So this is point is extremely important that like it is an eBPF program becomes part of the kernel. So it's not, it should not be untrusted. Don't load untrusted eBPF code into your Linux kernel. Mm. So how can someone check whether the eBPF a module that they got or the extension that they got is secure and it's okay to run it. This is where the signing comes in, right? I think as a user, you cannot, you could, of course, disassemble the bytecode and, and figure out what it was doing, right? But just like you are running a program, like a non-kernel program as well with capabilities, you need to trust the source that provided that application. And once you trust that source, you need to make sure that, the, that you're actually running the code that the source provided you, this is where the signing is coming in. And I think this is where open source plays a major role. So by using and relying on open source, the development process and the code itself is open and public and can be reviewed by everybody. So you're not running just proprietary binary in the end. Mm -hmm. I know that you've done a lot of work on security, Liz, container security specifically. And I'm sure that if you're thinking the fundamentals, the right fundamentals are there, that is a huge thumbs up to how the entire process works. Because having people like you review the process and understand the components, again, it gives us confidence that someone that knows what they're doing, really knows what they're doing, are saying, yep, this is good. And having the, this like peer reviews, having the open source community look at it, having different companies look at it, give everyone else the confidence that, yep, this passed the test. Yeah, I mean... I I think that's fundamental to open source processes, isn't it? It's, you know, many pairs of eyes, many people's thought processes contributing to, you know, not just developing code, but also sort of reviewing it and thinking about it and thinking about the threat model and thinking about how things could be abused. Um, yeah, certainly one of the, you know, reasons why I got excited about eBPF was like, well, this really deep visibility has to be useful for security tooling and, and I've worked in security tooling for quite a while and you can you can see that you know any given approach has its pros and its cons you know there's the fact that we have this ability with eBPF to see everything in a given machine because just to remind everyone that if you're uh, running containerized code all the containers that run on a given virtual machine are sharing one single kernel. And the ability to instrument the kernel rather than instrumenting individual containers certainly strikes me as a much more, um, I very much believe in defense in depth, but if you're only going to observe from one place, then the kernel would be the place I would choose because of that breadth of, of visibility. Yeah. So I remember that that's the one talk which I did have time to watch, uh, the one that you gave Liz at KubeCon, the recent one, uh, it's on the Cilium service mesh. Oh, yeah. And I really like how you talked about 
this concept of a service mesh, which is really important to security. Uh, you have mutual TLS, you have uh, uh, basically creating like network links between these like disparate hosts. There's like a lot of things going on there. We used to do them in the application, then it moved to the service mesh, to the sidecar, and now it's moving to the kernel, where arguably shouldn't have been from the first place, because hey, all networking happens in the kernel. Well, in recent years, like for the most of us, that's where we remember that networking happens. And I'm starting to see like eBPF, it's, it's, as Thomas said, it's pretty much everywhere, even places that we don't know. And some things that we may have been doing wrong with like service meshes, like not wrong, but like suboptimal, there's a better way. And I can see starting like this convergence of all things coming together. But how do you think of service meshes and how, where do you see Cilium in this context? Because there's something really powerful there where all this tooling is starting to come together in a nice way. And sure, you can write your own. I mean, everyone is free to do that, but maybe have a look how it's done in, in, in Cilium service mesh, which it's the first time when I've seen it, like service meshes, I always had like this, I'm not sure what I need it, but it started making sense. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. And I think for me as well, for, for a long time, you, know, you think about service mesh, but Kubernetes has service mesh as a native, you know, resource type. It's a native concept in Kubernetes. So the idea of having like a whole extra control plane to connect service meshes always struck me as just like, I, is this really what we need? And I didn't have a, you know, a solution for that, but it always struck me as a layer of complexity that seemed kind of maybe a bit overblown. And I think there's a very interesting analogy. If we think of Kubernetes as a distributed operating system and, you know, we're running workloads in Kubernetes across a, a, you know, a cluster of machines or even multiple clusters of machines, service mesh starts looking like it's the networking layer for that distributed operating system. But that doesn't mean that it has to be separated out from the native, you know, what we traditionally think of as, as networking. And that's where I think Cilium service mesh is super interesting and becomes much more efficient because we stop saying that the networking layer that connects machines or that connects individual pods is in any way different from the networking layer that connects services. And, you know, they're, they're all using the same, you know, physical or virtual ethernet connections basically un underneath them. Mm -hmm. And Cilium Service Mesh compresses our view of like pod to pod network and service to service network into one concept. And that's possible because eBPF has visibility over all of the workloads on any given machine. So whether we're connecting, you know, if we're connecting one pod to another pod in a sidecar model, the pods don't have visibility of each other directly, but with the service, with eBPF connecting them, they can have visibility directly. And we can still have the service abstraction, but without actually having to implement it as a whole separate layer of networking. Being able to make those much more direct connections between the endpoints, whether they're on the same node or on a, on a different node, we don't have to kind of route through two proxies to, to get there. There's a slide which, which really resonated with me, and that shows the path that packets take all the way from the application 
down through all the layers that you have like, like a sidecar, there's like a user space process, then it eventually, you know, hits the kernel, then it goes back up again, like through another proxy, as you mentioned, and it's very, very messy. While really, once it enters a kernel, it could just stay there, including for encryption, which I find that fascinating, like TLS, all that, it can happen in the kernel and where it should, rather than going back to user space. And that makes it so much more efficient, latency-wise, observability-wise, and that's very important. You don't have like all these systems that you have to instrument, there's just, like, there's just one thing, and you just look at that one thing, and it's very obvious what is happening. Layer 3, Layer 4, even Layer 7, which I find fascinating. And HTTP 2, that is a very hard protocol. HTTP 1 is so simple in comparison. People that have to do anything with HTTP 2, they realize there's so much there. So I'm imagining, I've never done this, but I'm imagining observability for HTTP 2 is more complicated, maybe, than HTTP 1. What do you think? It is. And I think actually when we, it's a perfect example, because when we started looking at what, what of the service mesh functionality could we do natively in eBPF? We immediately came to the conclusion, well, all we have to solve is HTTP2 parsing. And we can be pretty confident that we can, from a protocol parsing complexity, we can solve most of it. However, I think the best way to look at this is to understand there is kind of two very different perspectives. As I mentioned, we are, we're coming from the kernel development background. So our world is the kernel and we have been looking at applications that we don't really care what the applications are doing. We are providing services to the applications, connectivity, uh, TCP, security, VPN, IPsec, and so on. A lot of what is kind of very similar to what service meshes started to do, but they have been coming down from the application level, as you mentioned, kind of initially this was embedded into the application code. And to me, that's very similar to the era where we were running applications on physical services or on physical servers. And then that migrated or changed into sidecars where we started to move that out of the application. So we don't have to write that functionality for every application framework. That's very similar to the VMH where we said, okay, now we have virtual machines. They're completely separate from each other. And we are essentially running a separate copy of the operating system of Linux in every virtual machine. And that's exactly the same what a sidecar is doing. You're running a separate proxy in every application part. And that makes a ton of sense if you're coming from the application developer era, right? Because what's down here in the kernel level is very mysterious. Like what's going on there? I don't quite fully understand. So we have this both, the, we are coming from the bottom of this very kernel focused view and everything in the kernel is simple for us. And for application teams, yes, deploying in a, a sidecar, a proxy, that's easy. Uh, I don't want to deal with this kernel level. And now we have these two kind of layers converging together. And we're seeing, I think, the evolution of what makes sense, uh, kind of thing conceptually, which is all these service mesh values, resiliency, visibility, security, connectivity, that should be transparent to the application. And traditionally, the operating system has been where this has happened. And we actually did this shift before from like running multiple copies, kind of the virtual machines, to the shared operating system, which are containers. So essentially, what we are doing with Cilium Service Mesh is to essentially provide both options. If you want to run the sidecar copies, you can. We, we have that as part of Cilium as well by our SD integration, but then work towards moving as much of that as possible to the operating system where it becomes as transparent, as invisible as TCP is today, where applications can just run on an operating system and they get 
the service mesh values because most of them are not completely new from what they provide. They just provide this at a different level. Like for networking people, that's like instead of doing it at layer four where we care about TCP and UDP, you do this at HTTP or gRPC or a different application protocol level. I really like this um, TCP analogy because, you know, you could theoretically run your own TCP stack in user space if you wanted to today. That is still possible, but nobody does it. And I think in a few, some amount of time, we will feel the same about sidecar proxies, you know, that, well, you could run one like that, but why would you choose to do so when there's a much more efficient path? Yeah. And maybe this is also, I think, a good point to maybe expand a little bit on the gluing power of eBPF because one of the main questions I get is often, well, can you do X with eBPF? But what about this? And like, what are the limitations of eBPF? And actually, it doesn't matter that much because the true power of eBPF is to glue existing things together. The example that Liz mentioned is amazing. There was a time when user space TCP IP stacks were becoming more popular during the virtualization age, right? Because we had frameworks like DPDK and things like this that offer better performance by going into user space, by moving out of the kernel because the kernel became so hard to change. And eBPF has now introduced a, a, a tooling framework that allows us to glue individual layers in the kernel and in user space together and find more efficient paths to connect dots of existing functionality, such as the well-proven TCP IP stack, which has been evolving for the last 30 plus years, right? And is probably the best TCP IP implementation that is out there with, for example, an Envoy proxy running in user space. So eBPF is, it's less about solving every single problem in eBPF. That's not the goal at all of the eBPF ecosystem in general. It's about, we want to use the pieces that we have that we want that are well proven and working, cut out the pieces that maybe are no longer efficient or no longer needed and find the best possible shortest path for users to gain value out of that. So, and that I think if we look at it from this perspective, it actually becomes often less important whether every single problem can be solved in eBPF itself. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is a reliability platform for every developer. Incidents are a win, not an if situation, and they impact everyone in the organization, not just SREs. And I'm here with Robert Ross, founder and CEO of Fire Hydrant. Robert, what is it about teams getting distracted by incidents and not being able to focus on the core product that upsets you? I think that incidents bring a lot of anxiety and sometimes fear and maybe even a level of shame that can cause this paralysis in an organization from progress. And when you have the confidence to manage incidents at any scale of any variety, everyone just has this breath of fresh air that they can go build the core product even more. I don't know if anyone's had the the opportunity, maybe is the word, uh, to call the fire department. But no matter what, when the fire department shows up, it doesn't matter if the building is hugely on fire. They are calm, cool and collected because they know exactly what they're going to do. And that's what Fire Hydrant is built to help people achieve. Very cool. Thank you, Robert. If you want to operate as a calm, cool, collected team when incidents happen, you got to check out Fire Hydrant. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all the features. No credit card required to sign up. Get started at FireHydrant.com. Again, FireHydrant.com. 
So I would like to talk about a demo next that shows how all these things come together. I'm thinking Liz's demo from, from KubeCon, but if you know a better one or a newer one, we can talk about that as well. Which way are we going? <laughs> Wait, was that my uh, Tetragon demo or my... Star Wars, <laughs> the Star Wars, the TIE Fighters, the exhaust ports, Star Trek fans, it's okay if you drop off. <laughs> not a problem or not drop off maybe fast forward a few minutes oh, we, could, we could cross the streams we could we could totally do Can some we? star trek ones as well if, that, if, that, if people want that so yeah let's do exactly i i love that because like there there's like um this analogy works in in any universe okay whether it's a star trek one whether it's a star wars one it doesn't really matter dune any dune fans the expanse whatever uh the point is it's a really good demo that showcases how all these things come together how they show layer three, layer four, the observability element. It was really well made security wise. I mean, it was amazing. Like in a few minutes, users, listeners can actually see, and I'll, I'll drop a link in the show notes. But can you describe to us, Liz, like the demo roughly how it works and what are the components and how do they work together to showcase what is possible when all the different ones or like all the components are put together in something that users can use? I'm trying to remember exactly what I demoed because we have quite a few Star Wars themed things that fit together and we pull different bits in and out for different demos. But essentially, you know, imagine you are the security officer on the Death Star and, you know, you have an API for the Death Star and uh, you maybe want to allow Empire ships to be able to access that API, but probably not you know, anybody who is not part of the Empire ecosystem. So uh, as the security officer, or maybe just the platform team for the Empire, you make sure that every Empire ship is labeled with Empire you know, as, as on their kind of Kubernetes YAML. It's it's just labeled to say, I, I am an Empire uh, vessel. How do we verify that they're an empire vessel. They just say, hey, I'm empire. Okay, you're empire. <laughs> there's, there's a whole other level of certificates that we could add into this. You have to go to Darth Vader as a certificate authority to get him to give you a certificate. Okay, that makes so. sense, yes. Okay. <laughs> but but yeah, for, for now, let's just, just stick with the, with the labeling. I mean, so you might, for example, use an ingress to terminate that TLS connection. Mm -hmm. And uh, as somebody enters the, uh, the galaxy far, far away, you could terminate that TLS connection and verify that they were who they said they were. And, uh, mm -hmm. and truly, they had a certificate issued by, by Darth Vader. <laughs> I'm stretching my analogy. Speed of light restrictions do not apply. Everything happens instantaneously, by the way, or near instantaneously. Yeah. Okay. And Cilium, because Cilium has um, for every endpoint, be that, you know, the Death Star itself or the Empire ships or Rebel ships, it has a, an endpoint identifier. It knows about, it actually is running eBPF programs to check policy. So you have network policy that's looking either at layer three, four, or using those Kubernetes identities, possibly even using you know, looking at the path. So perhaps your your empire-based ships, you know, they're labeled empire, but even still, 
even if they're the empire and you're going to allow them to land on the Death Star, you do not want them putting something into the exhaust port API. You want to make sure that if that's the API call they want to make at layer seven, that they're not permitted to do so. And we can do that uh, inspection you know, for every single packet that's uh, coming into the into the galaxy. I'm still going with this metaphor. <laughs> this is the Cilium CNI that does it? Is that the component responsible for it? Yeah, it, it is the Cilium CNI. Yes, yes, exactly. And we've had these, I remember when I first joined iSurveillant, actually, Thomas telling me about how, well, we already have like an 80% service mesh because we already have, you know, load balancing. We already have observability at layer three, four and layer seven. We already have network policy at layer three, four and layer seven. You know, we have encryption. We, there's not much more to go from the, the CNI that has all these capabilities to enforcing that with service mesh primitives like what we started with, with Kubernetes ingress. And we were already using the Envoy proxy for some of that layer seven capability. And, and we still do. We have Envoy proxy built into the Cilium agent that runs on every node. So at any point, if we have to terminate a layer seven connection, Envoy proxy is, is, is doing that and, and extremely capable of doing that. But a, a lot of, you know, we don't have to terminate every single packet through the proxy. We, a lot of the time we can um, deal with everything entirely within eBPF. And that's where a lot of the performance gains come from. Okay. So if we were to take a cleanser break, have you seen the web images, web with double B from the galaxy for the various, uh, the web telescope? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The incredible zoom in to really detailed galaxies. Yeah. Amazing. With all the detail. What do you think of those? Amazing. I mean. The detail. Yeah. Deep observability. Yeah. That's, that's EVPF level observability. <laughs> Thomas, what do you think? Have you see, have you have you managed to see them? Absolutely. I mean, I'm a huge space fan, and even though I understand quite a bit of physics, I think the the ability to look back in time with a telescope, I still it's still very hard to 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 really make sense of this. That you can essentially use a telescope and and look back in time like millions and millions of years and see what appears to be an incredibly clear picture. Just to be surprised again, five, ten, ten years later, when the next generation of telescopes comes around, and you can see it even in more detail. So it's incredibly fascinating because it's it's a world that we don't see in in our daily lives at all. Like it's so different. So it's super fascinating. Uh, I'm a huge space fan, and I've been following, of course, the launch and the the, the the reveal of the pictures very, very closely. And you know the. Thomas was probably responsible for the fact that the observability component in Cilium is called Hubble. And um, I think, you know, we, we talked about whether when we announced Tetragon, I think internally we even talked about whether we could name it as web because of even more visibility. But at the time when we were first thinking about it, I thought nobody knows what the James Webb telescope is. And, and now I'm thinking, oh, maybe we should have gone that way. I don't know. Everybody knows now they've seen the pictures. Hand on heart. When I've seen those images, the first thing which I thought about was, is Isovalent going to do to use this name for one of their products because of <laughs> Hubble? Seriously, like like my mind went instantly. I don't know why it was like I was, I was like so like there was like some eBPF tweets, 
And then there was this, and maybe my mind just like made the connections and the, and the thought that popped in my head, where is web? Why does isovalent not have a web? So Thomas, what can we do about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, probably what we have today is probably definitely not the last uh, project we've created around eBPF. And every time we see like the web uh, telescope, you, you can actually in the mirror, you can find the Cilium logo. And I think that that's uh, we're, we're so connected. <laughs> oh, yes. See, I didn't even realize that until you mentioned it. You're right. The Cilium logo is in the web. Like all the mirrors, they have the same shape. Why is that? Is, is there a connection there? Like, was this like intentional or did it just happen? Well, you could argue who, who was there first. I was, did, did not I see. get influence from us or the other way around. <laughs> the bees, the, the bees, bees were there first. They created the structure of nature. Okay. Mm. So why the hexagon, by the way? And I'm like wondering why the hexagon? Is, is there some story to it? The story is that like the hexagons, you can fit them together very nicely, like and tightly. Mm -hmm. So I think they're actually a really good representation of containers and microservices and cloud native. Um, and it also like if you look at bees, you have these hardworking bees creating uh, like hexagon hives, hexagon shaped hives. So from a theme perspective, um, that made a ton of sense. Why you see the the bee as the logo for EBPF, Selim uh, is using that hexagon hive as a as, a, as, its, as its own logo. So it, as a theme, it made a ton of sense overall. It's why we, why we started out this way. And it is very nice that it is a shape that gets used in space quite a lot. I remember, so a million years ago, I was an intern at a um, company that made satellites. And I remember things like the insulation is all done as a kind of honeycomb shape. And uh, yeah, so it's a very strong structure, strong and light structure. Okay. So... Coming back to Hubble, I know that when I asked you in episode, I think 26, when we last talked, Liz, you mentioned about Hubble, about the visibility, and I didn't realize just how much it exposes. Web would be amazing in the future, for sure. But Hubble, the one that we have today in this ecosystem, what does it enable users to see and why is it important? So you can get visibility into every single network packet. Uh, so you can use the Hubble, either the command line or the UI to, to see all the packets that you want to see or filter them if you don't want to see all of them. Uh, you can build up a service map. All of this being generated by eBPF code. So it's extremely sort of performant. Those eBPF programs are very lightweight. And also generating metrics for in Prometheus format, for example, also open telemetry. Mm -hmm. But those metrics, and we have some standard dashboards and you can build your own dashboards as well, amazing level of detail that you can get through Prometheus and then Grafana. If you want to see latency or you want to see how um, where packets are being dropped, you want to see how many packets are being dropped. We had a really interesting internal demo yesterday about using those metrics to see whether your network policies are working correctly or not because you can see whether or not packets are being dropped and and perhaps if you were trying to build policies that allowed packets to flow you don't want to see those drops so you can see whether your your policy is is tuned correctly using those grafana output it's really nice we, we'll have to figure out how we get that demo into uh, into the public domain because mm. it was a really, really good demo that we saw yesterday. Yeah, I mean, people really respond like to visual elements like that when they, when they see 
they finally understand and there's so many things to see. I mean, the kernel is amazing what it does. I mean, networking and that just like a, a small segment. I mean, there's a CPU, there's the memory, there's like so many things there, but even like just networking, like all the layers, there's so much detail there. So I'm wondering, is there a way that problems could be surfaced without having to build dashboards, without having to try and understand all the potential things that could go wrong? I think that's uh, it's an, that this is what we might call web next. Yes. <laughs> I think if you look at kind of the evolution, initially we had like very raw exposure or visibility. Like, oh, I want to see every TCP, uh, every network packet, mm -hmm. and I would use TCP dump, or give me a very raw metric of something like the number of packets received or the number of HTTP requests being done, and so on. And then companies like Google and Twitter they wanted better metrics. That was actually discussed around the time when eBPF got introduced. These were like the, the Web10G metrics. And there was large, large discussion in the kernel community. Should the really advanced users be allowed to merge additional counters and metrics into the Linux kernel for something that is not really applicable for the vast majority of actual Linux users outside of the hyperscalers? And the solution back then was eBPF to make this programmable. And what Hubble is built on is this ability to have intelligence in how to collect the metrics instead of, instead of just exposing the raw information, actually, for example, create a histogram or collect stack traces or in the kernel correlate CPU consumption with a particular event, for example. I'm observing a TCP retransmission event, so a packet had to be retransmitted. Is that because of the CPU load? Is it because of a network policy drop and so on? The next wave will be to actually build even more intelligence into the kernel with eBPF, where we actually identify problems. We, for example, have stock exchanges using eBPF via Cilium, where they observe so-called microbursts. So they actually want to understand, is my application subject to a small burst in data or gaps or so-called TCP zero window events? So very short, like microseconds where the application is not receiving data. And these things are incredibly hard to observe via metrics because you need a human to correlate and look at the graphic and spot the problem. Computers are actually better at identifying a variety of these problems. That will be the next step. But this can typically not be done based on just a metric, you need to be very, very close to the source because observing this is incredibly costly. Mm -hmm. So this is where eBPF comes in. It's, it's enabling exactly this. So this is probably going to be the next level of observability that will be created with eBPF. We've done quite a bit of that already in our open source Tetragon project. I think this space will evolve massively where we, instead of having raw metrics, we actually have very intelligent sensors that give you a much higher level signal of what is going on, what is going wrong, what could be the problem. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Tetragon and we mentioned it a few times. What is Tetragon? Tetragon is, I think, all of our eBPF experience funneled into a runtime security and runtime observability project. So essentially what we have done with Cilium on the network side, we're doing with Tetragon on the runtime security side. So it's a it's an open source project that uses eBPF to give you visibility that is primarily security focused. So we can see, for example, which application is accessing a storage device or which processor application is accessing a certain file or when are capabilities escalated. For example, when is a process gaining 
CAPSIS admin capabilities or when does it become root? Uh, what system calls is it making? What child processes is it invoking? And so on. And um, we can also enforce rules based on that visibility as well and actually restrict what is allowed and what is not allowed to improve, for example, the isolation of a container runtime or to monitor and enforce namespacing, so the container isolation boundaries, violations of that, and give that visibility, that enforcement at the very, very low cost. Again, thanks to eBPF for all of this runs in the kernel, like very close to where the actual action is going on compared to prior solutions, which primarily used a very small kernel level probe or sensor that just exposes visibility to user space and then does the intelligence in user space. So it's moving more logic into the kernel where it is more efficient, less costly. And when it is less costly, it means that our users are able to actually enforce better, more finer grained visibility or enforcement rules because it costs them less. That in a nutshell is, is Tetragon. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems or test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version support, and all of that needs to be you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially, you know, engineer organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they, you know, lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using, you know, old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of, you know, older systems running more slowly or the build times or, you know, virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using. Before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human and one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't know Kotlin. But if you want to use the system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you can replace it with a single line source graph search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then of course, going forward. Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you. 
living inside your code base right now. Teams are tracking migrations, adoption, deprecations. They're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages. They're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities. They understand their code by team. They can track their code smells and health, and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with Code Insights. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. See how other teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link is in the show notes. I remember that there is a book that two of, um, I think, isovalent folks co-authored, I think. Um, do you remember the title? Yeah, The Security Observability with eBPF, I think it's yeah. called, that Natalia and Jed. How, how, can, how can our listeners go and get the book? Is it Do they just go to O'Reilly and buy it? What does that look like? So that one's actually um, what O'Reilly call a report, which um, mm. essentially means it's not sold through kind of uh, bookstores. You can't get it from Amazon. You can get it through O'Reilly's, their own learning platform. So if you've got an O'Reilly subscription, that's one way to get it. You can also download it from the ISOvalent website. Okay. Link in the show notes. Well, you can also download my What is eBPF report, which is... Uh, I was going to mention that next. And there's also What is eBPF. So... I mean, hearing if, if hearing us talk made you more curious and you want to dig into more, what is eBPF by Liz? That is a great one. Sign copies, I don't know when it's going to happen next. There was such a huge queue at KubeCon. People just waiting, like hundreds, I think, hundreds of people were just wanting like to get a signed copy. Are you going to do that again, Liz? Sign copies? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people want... When is the next time? Certainly KubeCon Detroit, I, I, we might find another opportunity before then. I think maybe maybe also Container Days in Hamburg is a, okay. a potential opportunity. Yeah. Is there like an eBPF related conference uh, or is, oh, I think there is one. There's just like eBPF Day, but that is part of KubeCon. But there's also another one, I think. Uh, is it virtual? eBPF Summit, which is virtual. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's going to continue to be virtual this year arose during the pandemic years when there wasn't a choice but uh and mm -hmm. um, you know it, it it was so popular so well attended from people all around the world that um doing it virtually you know it, it enables a lot of people to participate so we're with the cfp as we're recording is open we're seeing some really interesting submissions coming in it's going to be september the 28th and 29th so uh block those dates in your diary it'll be Two days, short days, so we try and time it for evening in Europe, morning on the West Coast, so that as many people as possible can join us in their waking hours, with apologies to folks in, in Asia. And there'll be four or five hours of jam-packed eBPF content. It was so much fun last year. Um, yeah, I really hope we can uh, pull off, if we can pull off as equally fun this year, it'll be Excellent. Are digitally signed copies an option? Oh, of the book. Like, is there a way, Liz, to get digitally signed copies for what is eBPF and then security observability with eBPF, the two books? We haven't 
come up with a solution for that yet. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm quite old school about this. I feel like, you know, having a something that you've written on with pen is it's got a bit more of a, you know, a physical, tangible uh, feel to it than uh, than something digital. But yeah, maybe we need to come up with something. Yeah. Always a preferred option for sure. But I'm thinking double signed. Like you can get like a digital copy, maybe signed, maybe. And then you get like an actual one signed and signed for real. Uh, so you can get both. You can enjoy one while you're like on a train or on a plane. And you want to get the book out. And the other one when you're at home in the lounge or out in the sun. And you can you, you can read an actual physical book and go to an actual physical conference. This is somehow reminding me of the uh, excellent the cert manager folks on their booth at KubeCon were giving you physical certificates so you could, um, in the same way they will generate you a certificate online, they would generate you a physical, um, it's like a little bit of card with a QR code on it. And uh, it was mm-hmm. pretty nice to verify that you had been at their booth. Yep. That is a good one. That is a good one. So, uh, yeah, so physical books. I still need to get mine. I still need to get mine. Can I get one through Isovalent? Can I can I go and or is it just like digital? I can download from there the books. Just digital from there. Yeah. Just digital. Okay. And physical ones, I think at KubeCon you mentioned. For sure at KubeCon. In Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 We talked a lot about eBPF, the community, maybe not so much the community as much as the projects, because there's a lot of things. And we only covered a small portion. I mean, eBPF is a huge, huge space. So who else beyond Cilium and beyond Isovalent is in this eBPF community? eBPF kind of sparked out of the Linux kernel community. So in the beginning, like around 2014, it was majority of the bigger kernel contributors, uh, Google, Facebook, Netflix, uh, Red Hat and so on. And then as eBPF started to evolve, we saw an entire ecosystem being built around it from SDKs and libraries that actually allow you to write eBPF code in higher level languages. And then a, a set of end user projects and Cilium was one of them, Falco, BCC, BPF Trace, Tetragon, Hobble and so on. And all of that now makes the eBPF ecosystem overall, right? From kernel level, we even saw Microsoft port eBPF over to the Windows kernel in the last year. And when that started to happen, it, it started to make sense to think about like who should be involved in a broader sense out of, outside of the Linux kernel community, which was kind of the governing structure for eBPF as a technology itself. So we have last year created the eBPF Foundation. It is part of the Linux Foundation. Uh, founding members were uh, Google, Facebook, Netflix, Microsoft, and Isovalent. Since then, we have gained uh, a lot of additional members, including Red Hat, uh, as well as a variety of different security vendors and so on. And this is now essentially kind of forming the the governance body like that comes together and uh, standardizes eBPF and uh, discusses security models, organizes some of the conferences and so on. So if you are interested in actually engaging in eBPF outside of just a purely code level contribution, which you can, of course, do completely independently and uh, and many do, you can obviously engage uh, through the Linux Foundation, 
via the eBPR Foundation as well. So today, I think it's a well-established technology with many really big industry players relying on it, uh, not only from a, maybe a product perspective, as our surveillance does, but also maybe from a just using this as a core technology for infrastructure. And, and all of this shared care and, I think, attention is now uh, centralized and managed through the eBPR Foundation. Mm -hmm. So if, as a listener, I'm an open source enthusiast, I participate in Kubernetes or I'm interested in Kubernetes. I've heard that eBPF is also huge outside of Kubernetes. So by the way, if you're thinking this is just Kubernetes specific, no, 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 that is like maybe the easy mode that many go for, but there's also hard mode. There's definitely hard mode. So how can people get involved, get started with eBPF, the eBPF ecosystem, so that first they understand just how big it is and what is possible? I think the best way to get started is actually to attend an eBPF summit or to watch recordings from a prior eBPF summit. It shows the width of the ecosystem from hearing talks about from the eBPF maintainers on the security model and the verifier to users talking about their story, why did they choose uh, this particular eBPF program or project, uh, what problems did they solve, to new upcoming eBPF projects being um, kind of first talked about to research being done in eBPF and so on. It shows the full width and it also shows you a lot of points where you can get involved on whatever level that is, whether this is I want to start getting involved in a project on the documentation or code level, or I just want to be part of it and try it out and learn with others together. The eBPF Summit is a great way of getting involved there. We also have an eBPF Slack uh, with thousands and thousands of eBPF folks that, are, that want to um, collaborate together on all sorts of different levels, like from code level deep down to um, I'm, I'm a Stillum user, I'm a Falc user, I'm a Pixie user. You will find that on eBPF.io. That's a community eBPF site. It has a Slack link as well as a link to the, to the recordings of prior conferences, whether it's eBPF Summit, which is more the higher level one, all the way down to the, the BPF developer conferences where the lower level details are being discussed. I just have it open right now. I'm looking at ebpf.io and it's a really nice website. I don't know who built it. I just have to go scroll to the bottom. No, it doesn't say that. Who's behind it? Because this is like, what is ebpf project landscape right there at the beginning, a nice diagram, just the right amount of text that makes, you know, like good progress. This is really good. Who's involved with this? Do you know? We have sparked the idea and we're maintaining it together with the EBPF ecosystem. Um, so like the, the contributors to EBPF, like mm -hmm. together with all the different folks that have been involved in EBPF since the early days, from Daniel Borkman that Liz mentioned, one of the co-maintainers, Alexei, Brandon Gregg, of course, uh, more and more employees from our side. Um, so it's a, it's a um, collaborative effort across all of the EBPF, EBPF community side. There's a similar one, eBPF.foundation, and I'm thinking about Isaac uh, Simov, I have to, whenever I see foundation, <laughs> still like keeping it in the science fiction theme. And that is like even the wider view, slightly different, but still similar. Uh, eBPF Summit 2021 videos are available, watch now. Daniel Borkman, that's like a video right there. Okay, this is really good. I mean, just skimming it, I already know what it is and what the options are and where I want to go next. So so this is this is great. Apart from the website, uh, you mentioned Slack. Are there like community weeks or community hours that are being run? I know there's also like e Echo. Is it Echo, Liz? The yes. Tell us about that a bit. 
So ECHO very loosely stands for the EBPF and Cilium office hours. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's a weekly live stream that I host and Duffy Cooley, who uh, many people will, will know from um, TGIK. We were very inspired by that live stream. So the idea with ECHO is that, you know, we'll explore anything related to EBPF or Cilium. And we've had some amazing guests showing off what they've been doing in EBPF projects. We've had some really interesting, you know, demos of um, tools, demos of things you can do with Cilium, um, walkthroughs of, um, you know, different tutorials or um, Duffy did a really interesting one the other week about the life of a packet in Cilium, which uh, was, was really great. Um, so yeah, we cover tons of different topics. We love people to come and join us when it's live and, and ask questions because the, the kind of community aspect of that keeps it really, really fun. So I really like this community aspect. I really like there's like a lot of activity around it. There's like whole summits, huge names are, big, are part of the foundation, amazing contributions from everywhere. This, I don't know what, is EBPF a utility? It's not really a utility. It's, how, how, would you, how would you call it? Like, what is it? I'm trying to find a word that describes it because it's everywhere. And I don't want to call it air because it's not air, but it's like, like air. I, I quite often call it a technology platform. I don't know if that's a, I don't know how, how accurate that is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a maybe the, the, the highest level one is like just, it's a programming language for the operating system. Yeah. For the, okay. Yeah. The JavaScript or the kernel. Yeah, I think I, I just keep coming back to that. That's that's what I mentioned in episode twenty six. This it's just like so. It is it is the it is the one that is I think resonates the best. Obviously, it is faster than JavaScript, and like all like there's all lots of bots, 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 bots. But I think it's very similar, like from kind of what it enables. That's why it's hmm. why often it kind of connects the dots. Yeah. So from an open source perspective, I see a very healthy ecosystem. From a business perspective. There's the big names, obviously. There's also like the smaller companies that you can go to. And one of them is Isovalent. And Isovalent, I mean, you've been involved with eBPF since before Isovalent. So if I have a business and if I'm depending on eBPF, what would prompt me or direct me towards Isovalent? What is the value behind engaging with Isovalent? And by the way, if you just want to, as a listener, if you're still like, no, 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 this is, this is not an ad. I'm genuinely curious and just skip a few minutes. It's okay. When we, when we, before we even started uh, the company, we created Cilium and we saw this, I think just the, the huge potential of the technology itself. And there was this huge urge. We want to create something amazing with eBPF <laughs> and maybe different to how was, how eBPF was used so far, actually create something that is usable for the mass, which is why we created Cilium. Like, okay, we want to bring eBPF to the cloud native world and bring all of its powers to end users because eBPF itself it's really on the programming language level. So it's an assembly bytecode language. You need to be almost, not quite, but almost a kernel level upper to consume and use eBPF directly, which is doable for companies like Facebook and Google and Netflix and LinkedIn, like the really big names out there with own kernel teams. That's not typically the case for your standard enterprise or your SMB. Like that's, it's a low level deep low-level technology. So what Isovalent, the reason why we created Isovalent, why we founded Isovalent, is to bring and help enterprises get to the value of eBPF 
via Cilium. So we have products based on Cilium that solve a bit more than what Cilium OSS can do, mm -hmm. um, focusing really on the enterprise maybe compliance-specific use cases. So you can, of course, completely run Cilium OSS on your own. And as you dive into the more very enterprise-specific use cases with the very concrete compliance requirements, that's typically when you start looking into our enterprise distribution. Of course, there's also a support angle. So if you are happy with Cilium, you start relying on Cilium, you're building your applications off top of Cilium and eBPF, you want to be able to call a company for support if something goes wrong. That is the big one, isn't it? We keep coming back. Like when you have a problem, who are you going to call? I mean, the Ghostbusters? You will need Ghostbusters to go down in the kernel and really understand this eBPF thing. And sure, the forums are there, the community is there, but can you afford to do that? I mean, most of you maybe can, but I know that some of you will, will need this. So it's there for when you need it. And when you need it, you will know it. So no, I will need to sell you on it, <laughs> but it's there. Yes, I mean, I, I believe it's quite simple. Like if you if you build great products, customers will love the products and they will be glad to pay for them. Yes. And eBPF allows to build amazing products. So that's really all that we focus on, building great, amazing products. We've always believed in the rest is coming and, and we have had more than enough success based on what we've built so far. So we're we're not worried at all on the business model side in terms of what ABPF and our open source ecosystem allows us to do. I know that some of the listeners, some of our listeners may be thinking, oh, I wish I could work with Liz. I wish I could work with uh, Duffy. How could they do that? And this is not the leading question. We didn't talk about this like on the spur of the moment because genuinely, if you like eBPF and if you've been maybe a contributor or have been, you know, like close to the ecosystem, how can you get closer to isovalent Cilium and just work on it full time? What does that look like? We have many, many, many openings right now from Go software engineers, eBPF engineers. So you don't need to know eBPF. Right now, even if you're interested in eBPF and maybe you learn, you, you have some Go knowledge, you have some um, Kubernetes knowledge, some security knowledge, feel free to check out isovalent.com. We have a careers page with many offerings in engineering, marketing, uh, solution architecture, community roles. Um, we're growing pretty quickly right now. So like, if you're interested, have a, have a look. There might be an opening that is interesting for you. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Uh, thank you for that, Thomas. As we prepare to wrap up, I'm going to ask a different question than I normally ask. I normally ask about like uh, the key takeaway, but I think we had so many, starting with eBPF is everywhere and you don't even know it. I'm sure eBPF is somewhere in the path of us recording this uh, episode. There must be somewhere, some eBPF running and people don't even know it. And it's ubiquitous at this point. What do you have coming up? It's summer, any holidays coming up? Uh, the summits. I mean, I know that Liz enjoyed uh, some time off. Uh, thank you, Liz, for sharing so many great pictures on Twitter. Um, I remember <laughs> one, like very nice blue water. Uh, what else do you have happening yeah. this summer and as you, we go into autumn? Well, personally, I have the next two weeks, I'm going to be doing jury service, which is going to be a bit of a okay. eye opener, I think. So that's, you know, definitely very different from my, from my day job, but could be a uh, an interesting insight into the mm. criminal justice system and uh yeah and then when i come back uh i've i'll be back for a bit then i've got a couple of weeks proper vacation and then we come back into the autumn mm -hmm. queued up for ebpf summit and you know the autumn conference season yeah. things like um open source summit obviously kubecon it's always busy in that autumn period <laughs> 
And before you know it, it's Christmas. So maybe I ask you about your Christmas present closer to Christmas because it's weird. It's summer right now, but I know time just flies. What about you, Thomas? What is coming up for you this summer and autumn? I'm, I'm definitely already looking forward to kind of the holidays around Christmas because I've seen the, the Christmas present that we'll be giving out to our own employees and it was going to be amazing. In short term, I'm looking forward to spend time in the mountains. I love nature. Um, it's the reason why, even though I've always worked for American companies in my entire career, I've never left Switzerland. I think it was, it's the mountains, it's the snow. I, I cannot do skiing. Well, technically I could, but I'm not going to do skiing, but like hiking, trail running, spending time with the family in the mountains. I'm looking forward to that. I think wow. the Alps, Switzerland is just amazing for this. All right. You just touched a very soft spot, <laughs> but we will leave that for another <laughs> conversation. Uh, and that's exactly the way you're supposed to plan. You pick your Christmas presents in summer and you plan your summer holidays in winter. That's exactly how it's supposed to work. If you're organized and you know what you want, I also subscribe to that idea. So I also know what's happening for Christmas, <laughs> including the holidays and everything. So yeah, I mean, some of us just, just are wired that way. Anything else that you'd like us to cover? I mean, this was like, there's like, there's so many follow-up questions. I just have to contain myself. And I was containing myself as much as I could. But anything else that we didn't mention that you want to mention? I think we pretty much covered everything. Uh, I mean, okay. and if people do have more questions, EBPF Summit is not going to be that far away. And, and that will be an amazing forum to have some questions. Also, just joining the Slack channel where... Um, Thomas is there, I'm there, but more importantly, a whole community of thousands of people who are interested in mm. ABPF are there and really helpful. You know, there's a really good spirit on that Slack channel. So the one thing, the last thing which I want to mention is this hexagon-shaped neon on Liz's wall. There's a <laughs> screenshot in the show notes. I'm just fascinated by it. It looks amazing <laughs> and I want one. Can you imagine how great it would look on that black wall <laughs> on those foam tiles? Okay, I think, I think, okay, Liz, uh, I will talk. Oh, actually, no, can you, can you tell us on like as we record so that listeners can know where to get one? Yeah, so um, that was actually my birthday present from my husband, and uh, but I know where it came from. It's called Twinkly LED, mm -hmm. and uh, they have a variety of different kind of light formats that you can program. It, it, it will appeal to our audience here, I think, because, you know, you can lay out, I've done a hexagon, you can lay it out in any format, and then you mm -hmm. scan yeah. the lights with your phone using an app, and then you can kind of program the, the color scheme to match the, the layout. It's extremely cool. I love it. <laughs> we need a referral link. I mean, I'm going to tweet that referral link and use it. I will find the link. Yes, I will please. Post it and we need one for yeah. Thomas too. Maybe if Thomas wants some LED lights on his walls, uh, but that's great. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Thomas. I had a lot of fun. Uh, looking forward to EBPF Summit and seeing you in autumn. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like money developers via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. The Firecracker VMs and the WireGuard integration are really sweet flat at IO. 
That's it for this week. See you all next week. As for my last takeaway, there are a few more episodes that I recorded in July, which are scheduled to ship well into September. They're worth waiting for and a good example of what it means to prioritize the right things at the right time. Hope that you all had a great summer and are looking forward to continue improving the systems that rely on your expertise. 